short and sweet. That's what we've done with this episode of the Vermont Edition podcast. I'm Matthew Smith, producer of Vermont Edition, and I wanted to say thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela Lafrac. First, a word of warning. If you have a fear of snakes, spiders, or scaly, strange creatures, this might not be the show for you. Today on Vermont Edition, we're talking exotic pets. Dogs, cats, and goldfish, those are for another day. This hour, we'll learn about the exotic animals some Vermonters keep at home. We'll learn what's legal to own in Vermont and what isn't, and how to care for certain types of exotic pets responsibly. Think Dr. Doolittle here, not Tiger King. We also want to hear your pet stories. Do you have an exotic pet? Do you want one, but you're not sure if you're cut out for it? Give us a call this hour. Our phone lines are open, 800-639-2211, or send an email to vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. You can even send us a picture. We would love to see it. Now, in a few minutes, we'll be joined by an exotic pets veterinarian with BEVS, the Burlington Emergency and Veterinary Specialist. But first, we are joined by Catherine Cody Verville, an owner of Many a Slithery Pet in Essex. Catherine, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us about these pets of yours. What do you have and how many? Um, I'd say at this point, we're probably closer to 40 plus. Um, we've got everything from fat tail geckos, ball pythons, uh, plains hog noses, Mexican black king snakes, um, along with some of the bigger animals like carpet pythons and boas. Okay. That's a lot of snakes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. We also have two dogs in the mix, but yeah, uh, we do have several at this point. Okay, so how how did this happen? Have you always been a person who likes snakes and reptiles? Um, th- no. Uh, the long story is probably like five years ago, if you told me that I owned or was going to own reptiles, I would have probably laughed at you. <laughs> um, but about four years ago, my now husband uh, was talking to me about wanting a snake um, when I told him absolutely not. Um, however, later in that week, um, a conversation about overcoming your fears kind of put me in a corner, um, where we ended up getting our first ball python. Um, and that kind of was the, the opening point for me. Um, I felt like if I was going to have one in my house, then I wouldn't want to, or need to know how to take care of her. Um, in case something came up or if my husband was out of town, I felt like that was only fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, so through doing a ton of research, um, started appreciating them more. I uh, found that plain prognosis were probably more my kind of uh, avenue in terms of starting to have snakes. And from there, uh, we were happening to be inside of a pet store when somebody was surrendering a plain prognosis and I just couldn't let that little guy go. Uh, so from there, it kind of took off. We spend a lot of time with other snake people to better know how to take care of ours. And yeah, over time, we kind of uh, have accumulated this collection that we have now. Wow. And can you kind of paint us a picture of what uh, what your house looks like right now with all of these snakes in it? Are they all in their own like glass cages? Are they in one room or spread mm-hmm. throughout your place? How does that work? Um, so right now they're all in one space. So we've got everything from like PVC enclosures that 
are, you know, four to six feet in length. Um, we've got some that are in glass tanks and some that are in what are called rack systems. Um, so they're similar to bookcases. It's just instead of where you would put a book, it's a little bit deeper and you can slide Tupperware of different sizes in and out of them. Um, so it depends on kind of the personality of the animal. Um, if they're really shy, then we'll kind of adjust their housing based on that. And then the bigger ones obviously end up in their big forest foot enclosures. Do you have a favorite? Um, I have a couple. Um, uh, so obviously my first one that I ever got is, you know, near and dear. Um, I have a rescue boa that I uh, also uh, keep close to my heart. And there's a little, a little, little guy um, who's an African house snake that I've named Twiggy. Um, <laughs> that would also be part of that top three for sure. And, and, Talk us through the sizes of these snakes here. What is the smallest and what is the biggest? Um, so I've got some that are still kind of in that baby phase. So you're probably looking at five-ish inches. Um, currently, our biggest one is probably about six feet, and that's a male carpet python. Um, but the female boa that we have, she'll end up being the biggest at six to eight feet. Six to eight feet? Yeah. Okay. I just need to take a breath. That's great. I'm so happy for you. Um, so talk to us about your long-term plan with these snakes. Because one, one thing I do want to get into later in the show when we bring on our veterinarian is about animal lifespans. Because sometimes I think mm -hmm. people get a, a pet and they don't realize that, you know, this is a really long-term commitment. Like, do you know how long all these snakes that you have are going to live for? So my, like, shortest lifespan is going to be a tricolor hognose. Um, those will be about seven to eight years. Um, longest, you're talking closer to your 20, 30 year mark. Um, so those are your bigger, like your boas and stuff that'll hit the 30 year. But um, kind of to hit on that point, though, um, in terms of how long they can live, we don't have any, but things like macaws or tortoises, like those guys can push 80 to 100 years. Um, so jokingly, Amongst our friends who also own reptiles, you know, we, we kind of joke like, hey, if anything happens to me, like, you'll be the one that I want to take on my animals since I know that you know how to take care of them. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely a long-term commitment. Um, people, I think, don't realize necessarily how long these animals can live. Um, and so I think that's definitely a huge factor when getting to know what animal or reptile you're most interested in. Um, to know how long, you know, it's going to live for ultimately. Right. Um, and then also in, in terms of, of some concerns that folks might have about, um, keeping non-domesticated animals, um, or making sure that animals are well cared for. When you were starting to, to get these, um, snakes and other reptiles, um, do, what kind of research were you doing to make sure that, you know, these, these pets that you were getting are, um, are legal and are going to be something that you can care for responsibly? Yeah. So in terms of like the legal aspect, all the states, um, especially with like fish and game are per very upfront as to what you're allowed to own uh, versus like what's permitted and not permitted. For example, like Vermont has a huge PDF sheet where you can take a look at specifically based on their scientific name. Like, do you need any kind of permitting or not? Um, so it's very transparent there. Um, in terms of care, for sure, I highly, highly recommend doing a lot of research. Um, animals can, you know, some needs 
special lighting. Some need additional vitamins and minerals that they don't necessarily get with food. And so that's something you have to supplement their diet with. Um, personally, I went on YouTube and I was watching a lot of YouTube videos. Um, there's some great pages on there for some long-term uh, reptile keepers that will talk about basic care um, in addition to kind of what to look for and signs of the uh, animals, you know, not necessarily getting the care they're supposed to. Um, so that was something that I probably spent most of my time uh, doing is a lot of YouTube videos and Googling information on the specific care of those reptiles. Mm. And then lastly, Catherine, what, what's been your favorite part about um, having all of these animals, all of these snakes in your home? Um, I think contrary to popular belief, they do have their own little personalities um, inside of their small or large bodies. And so it's definitely been kind of getting to know the personality traits of each one of these animals. Um, but also I've appreciated we call them morphs, but it's kind of ge genetic mutations that result in an alteration of coloration. Um, so the hognose is definitely an animal in like our collection that we have the most of. And so with that, we've got uh, a wide range of color morphs. Um, and so it's, it's really cool to see what people do with the genes and how also we're finding some of these genes out in the wild and then what we're doing in the wild to conserve these animals. So it's kind of been the, the conservation piece I've always found super fascinating, um, in addition to seeing kind of what nature can provide in terms of color mutation. Mm. Well, Catherine Cody Verville, pet owner in Essex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm not sure I'll be visiting your home anytime soon, but again, happy for you. You're making it work. Now, here to talk us through the rules that govern exotic animals in Vermont and the special care that they need is Dr. Jordan Adair, an exotic pets vet at BEVS, the Burlington Emergency and Veterinary Specialist in Williston. Dr. Adair, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And listeners, we'd love to hear about your exotic pets, if you have them, or your concerns about people owning exotic pets in Vermont. You can call us at 800-639-2211 or email us at vermontedition at vermontpublic.org. Now, Dr. Adair, let's start with some definitions here, because what one person thinks is exotic is completely normal to another person. But according to Vermont laws, what constitutes an exotic pet? Uh, well, first of all, I don't claim to be a, an expert on Vermont-specific laws, but I have had to, uh, since I moved here, uh, become at least somewhat familiar with them. Uh, I will say if anyone in, uh, is considering getting an exotic pet or wants more information, I would certainly reach out to um, the Vermont Fish and Wildlife Service uh, because they're the ones that regulate mm -hmm. what is and what is not allowed. Um, there really isn't a specific definition of exotic pet um, as far as the kind of the veterinary community goes, it's basically anything that's not a um, a farm animal or a dog or a cat. Um, so, you know, rabbits, many people may not consider rabbits to be especially exotic, but they do have some very different care requirements than dogs and cats. Um, but so any of the, the rabbits, the rodents, ferrets, um, any of the, the the avian, the bird species, so any of the parrots or canaries. Um, as far as veterinary is concerned, the 
backyard poultry is is something we see a lot, uh, and then reptiles, of course. Well, you mentioned rabbits. I think we actually have a call about rabbits. Um, let's go to Frederick in Castleton. Frederick, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, how's it going? Good, thanks. What's your comment or your question? Um, I own a uh, four-year-old Holland Loft rabbit named Winston, and I know that with Easter coming up, that lots of people uh, buy rabbits for their kids and not really knowing how much specialty care they need and that, you know, they chew cords and they're pretty expensive, and then a lot of them get abandoned. Mm. And I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that. Yeah, thank you for the the call, Frederick, and especially timely since, as you said, Easter is just around the corner. Um, Doctor Adair, what's your advice for folks considering getting a pet rabbit? Oh well, I think I think that concern is is absolutely true. I mean, rabbits can make great pets. They're generally considered to be the kind of the third most popular pet in the U.S. after dogs and cats, but they absolutely have some kind of specialized care requirements. Um, and I absolutely don't think they should be, uh, you know, uh, bought as a gift or for a holiday. There should there should be a lot of, you know, research that goes into it beforehand um, before the people would take that step. But on the flip side, I do think they, they have a lot of personality. Um, they can be very friendly. Um, and especially for people that are vegetarian or vegan and want a pet that is, rabbits would be perfect for that. Why is that? Uh, because they're vegetarian oh, or they're vegan right. as well. Of course, I didn't even think about yeah. that. Um, well, we also um, have gotten some questions from folks about um, that line between like an exotic pet and a farm animal, as you brought up. Um, and let's talk for a moment here about llamas, because again, they're not native to our area, but you know, folks in Vermont do have llamas. Does that constitute what you would consider a exotic pet or a farm animal? So I think from more of the the uh, the big picture and, and legal standpoint, I definitely think they'd be considered more of a farm animal. Um, and I know us personally at, at BEVS, the exotic service, we would not see them mostly just because we don't really have space for them in a hospital, right? And we don't do house calls, unfortunately. Right. Um, let's let's go back to the phone lines first. We have a call from Peter in Montpelier. Peter, you're on the air. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, I I really don't think you should be doing this show, even though you have Dr. Adair on uh, cautioning. You have people talking about exotic pets as this really cool thing. It's not a cool thing. Most of these pets, so-called pets, are 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 wild animals. They should not ever have been taken out of their environment, particularly ones that have been imported into the United States illegally from South America. I'm disappointed that you're even having this show. Well, thanks for, for calling, Peter. Um, and I think your concern is one that you know we talked about a lot before doing this show and really want to share some information about these pets because, like it or not, they are in this state. We want to make sure that people are following the, the rules as much as they can and keeping animals safe and trying to keep ones away that should not be here. Um, and Dr. Adair, during the break, we were talking a little bit about how Vermont has some really strict laws compared to other states about the animals that, that can be considered pets here. Is that right? Uh, that's true. Vermont, they, they regulate it a little bit differently, I think, than some other states do in that there's not uh, as many outright bans, but they require permits um, for a lot of species. So, for instance, um, 
wild caught animals, so whether they be, you know, the parrots or or reptiles. Actually, Vermont specifically um, says that they they have to be captive bred, which um, now you could make the argument that at some point in time that these animals were taken out of the wild, but um, in both birds and reptiles, the vast majority of them in the pet trade now. Um, at least for most species, are captive bred, and again, Vermont, Vermont allows many of these um, as captive bred individuals, but specifically says they're not they're not allowed to be wild caught. Mm. Now, your organization's exotic pet department, if you will, is relatively new, and you're relatively new to Vermont as well. You come to us from Ohio, as I just learned. Um, what made Bev's decide to open this this specialty area and bring you on? Uh, well, I think that um, exotics is a uh, a very different uh, uh, type of service uh, than than the traditional dog and cat veterinary medicine, uh, and I think they had they had you know had enough calls, owners looking for some place to take them, um, and they were looking to expand their services, uh, and I think it just was a bit serendipitous that we came in contact with each other. Um, but I think that they felt strongly that, that there was um, enough of a need uh, in the area to, to go ahead and, and make the jump to starting a new department. And what are the, the species that you see most frequently? So again, I, I mean, considering, um, you know, I've, I've only been in Vermont a couple months now, um, I, I'll speak to my, my more past experience, but uh, I think most commonly um, rabbits, ferrets, guinea pigs, um, rats, hamsters, uh, hedgehogs are all, you know, things that I see with relative frequency. And then quite a bit of, of the pet bird species uh, like the parrots and cockatoos, cockatiels, macaws, African greys. Uh, and I think uh, reptiles actually have, have become um, either a lot more uh, reptile ownership has become a lot more common or at least that more reptile owners are bringing their pets to the vet where I would see them um, in the last you know five years or so. Mm. Um, and then actually another one that I think has been become very uh, very common are, are backyard chickens. Mm. Um, I do think many people, you know, get them as, um, you know, for the eggs or or just wanting them to be, you know, uh, kind of farm animals in their backyard. But I think a lot of people fall in love with them and uh, they have a lot of personalities. So. Okay. So even though it's not technically an exotic pet, you're still seeing a lot of people yeah, bringing them. Yeah. So, the, so there are poultry-specific veterinarians too, but they typically deal with large-scale operations. So the, the person that has, you know, five or ten birds in their backyard um, that have names and that are, you know, they, they're taking care of them every day. Um, a lot of those people will, will bring them in for illness and injury. Well, we got an email ahead of today's show from Janet, who grew up on a dairy farm in the 70s in central Vermont. And Janet writes, Holsteins, draft horses, ponies, and chickens were the usual animals, along with many dogs and cats. We also fostered a baby porcupine once. As it grew, it took a liking to climbing up on my older sister's shoulders until she realized it was chewing at her hair. Whew. Lovely. <laughs> but I think actually Janet's email got me thinking about folks who might find an animal in the woods, maybe something that is injured and you know, want to bring it into their homes and care for it. 
what's your guidance there on someone who you know has that that feeling of wanting to care for? Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually really happy you brought that up, Uh, and I think I think that's a very natural reaction for a lot of people. Um, I will say that actually is not allowed. Um, There are uh, licensed uh, rehabilitators, uh, so Vermont, uh, that they get they have special training to be able to to take these animals um, and try to get them healthy enough for release. Um, so, you know, I, if someone finds an animal, uh, an injured or sick animal, or, or we're coming into spring, so it's it's baby season, so orphaned animals, yeah. um, I absolutely would encourage them to reach out. There are rehabbers all around the state. Um, I believe you can find a list of them if you just Google uh, Vermont Fish and Wildlife um, Wildlife Rehabilitators. There's a list with contact information. Okay, and we'll be sure to include a link to that in our show notes on our website, vermontpublic.org. Um, let's go back to the phones. We have a call from Tess in Guilford. Tess, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I had been talking to somebody and it said, you know, like, well, the good thing is if a python gets released from captivity – in this area, they're not going to survive the winter. And they said that, well, if like, they get born before the winter and they get hatched, they actually can survive. And I'm just curious to know if there's any truth to that. Hmm. Well, let's hope no pythons escape. But if they were to, how do you know how they deal with winter conditions? So, I mean, obviously, that's a that's. I think a fairly good question because in, you know, in Florida, obviously there's a, a big, um, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but there is a big issue with, with um, specifically Burmese pythons um, growing in the Everglades and they're from Southeast Asia and they get, you know, longer than 15 feet. <sighs> uh, but I would say, so the, um, the large constrictor species, the, the pythons, boas are, um, are, are, all tropical species, uh, and they would not be able to survive and reproduce. Now, is it possible that a single individual could make it through a winter? Sure, I think that's that's possible, um, but there's there's really no way, uh, at least at this point, that any of those snakes could survive for any length of time, uh, and certainly enough uh, enough of them to to have a breeding population. Well, while we're on the topic of snakes, um, I heard from our producer that one of the trickiest emergency procedures that you've had to perform was on a python. Could you tell us about it? Uh, yeah. So this was this was in during my uh, my internship. So in Ohio, uh, I uh, got a call from the, the ER, the veterinary ER in the middle of the night that there was a, a large snake that was bleeding a lot from its mouth and um, they asked me to the the veterinarian that I was seeing it asked me to come in, so I I came in and um, it was probably about a thirteen or fifteen foot uh, snake, um, I believe it was a a, a reticulated python, um, so the, which is at full grown is the the longest snake in the world. It was oh. captive bred, but uh, it had it had gotten its tongue stuck in something and oh. and, and essentially ripped it to shreds and it was oh. bleeding a lot. So I regret asking um, you about this. <laughs> so yeah, we had to we had to give it pain medications and and anest sedate it so we could I could either uh, sew the tongue up or amputate it. Uh, but it was so large that we actually didn't have enough uh, of the anesthetic 
uh, available to get it. Uh, well, we eventually got it to sleep, but it took a little bit. Uh, I, I think there at one point I had uh, four or five technicians trying to hold him so I could uh, get him intubated and get him asleep. My mouth is wide open. I don't even know what follow-up question to ask. We're just gonna we're gonna move right <laughs> along from that one. But wow, uh, let's go back to the phone lines. We have a call from Jennifer in Bridgewater. Jennifer, you're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I just had a question. Um, I always thought of chickens more as the farm the farm side of things, but um, anyway, I was just wondering about um, the impact of the avian flu, um, like how does that impact chickens versus any um, inside birds that people might have and um, and our wild population? Mm, great question. Yeah, let's talk avian flu for yeah, a moment these, here. These, some very excellent questions. Uh, so avian flu is a huge deal. I think I think most most people now are, are seeing some of the effects when we go to the grocery store and eggs are so expensive or or not able to to be in stock. Um, but avian influenza is a big deal. It is uh, wild birds and and outside poultry are absolutely much more at risk. Um, Inside birds that could be susceptible to it, it's it's typically just they're they're not going to come in contact to it, uh, enough. Uh, but there are um, it is a the 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 highly pathogenic avian influenza that that has been kind of going around over the last year or two now. Um, it is a big deal, and it is it typically um, causes acute death. Uh, and it means that in some of the larger farms, if it's found, it means that in order to try to stop the, pre- uh, the spread, a lot of times there are, you know, pretty severe quarantine measures that have to put in place. Um, but it is often spread by, by wild birds and it's now even being found in, in some, uh, wild mammals. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so do you have advice for, for folks who, who have chickens or another animal and are really concerned about? Yeah, this absolutely. I, at this point, I would say the, the, you know, I, I wouldn't be concerned about specifically about any, anything other than, than birds. Um, and as far as our pets go and, uh, so the biggest thing is if you have a bird inside, you definitely want to make sh- keep it inside, keep it away from anything that is in contact with wild birds. Uh, for the people that have poultry, uh, I do think the biggest thing is is you know trying to keep wild birds out of their enclosure, um, trying to to you know keep uh, droppings, so you know feces from wild birds from uh, you know getting into to foods, especially, but into areas where these birds are coming in contact. Um, and then also, you know, be very careful about uh, if, if, if you know, anybody's taking – has a flock of chickens and they want to bring new ones in, we need to be very careful about uh, about that as well. Mm. And could you reiterate for us before we move on mm. what, the, what the symptoms are of avian flu? So the, I mean, as far as in, in birds uh, uh, is what I can speak to, um, I mean, the symptoms really are acute death. So unfortunately, most of, most of these birds – don't really show signs. I mean, the respiratory signs are possible, but there's lots of other things that can cause that. So typically having multiple multiple birds just seemingly fine one day and then the, the dropping 
dropping dead the next day is is unfortunately kind of the one of the biggest signs. Oof. Okay. So the symptom is death. Uh, unfortunately for this this highly pathogenic strain. All right. Well, um, we have a call now from another listener with quite an interesting pet uh, that we haven't really talked about much yet today. Um, Natalie Redmond, thanks for joining us. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And Natalie, where what town are you calling from? I'm in Colchester. Great. Now, Natalie, I heard that you have a particular type of lizard, right? What is it? I, yes, I do. I have a bearded dragon. All right. Tell us about bearded dragons for folks who are imagining something large and fire-breathing right now. <laughs> yes, no no fire involved, thankfully. Um, but yes, I have a six-month-old bearded dragon. His name is Gene. Um, and as far as I know, I think um, bearded dragons are relatively common reptile pets, especially uh, for people who are interested in getting their first reptile, they're um, you know, on the scale of reptiles are somewhat easier to take care of, you know, a little bit lower maintenance. And they're also a lot more social than, uh, than most other, you know, lizard or reptile species um, in terms of wanting a, a pet that you can kind of play with or, you know, see a personality in and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. His name is Gene. Why? Uh, yeah, he's, uh, his name is Gene. It was from a particular show that I really like to watch called Bob's Burgers. Um, I just, uh, thought of the name one day and, uh, after a couple of days of having him, I decided that the name fit the lizard and it just stuck. <laughs> well, um, Natalie, we're, we're really trying to emphasize responsible pet care here. So, um, now that you have, uh, been an owner of this bearded dragon for a bit now, what would you say are the most important parts of his care that, that folks should know about if they're considering a pet like this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I think the the most important things for bearded dragons, specifically, obviously, reptiles and other exotics um, tend to come at that kind of higher tier uh, specialty care needs, that sort of thing. But um, for bearded dragons, especially big ones that I had to kind of make sure that I was, um, you know, understanding and and had all the supplies for is making sure that they have the appropriate heat uh, in their enclosures, um, you know, a warm side, a cool side so that they can travel back and forth as they need. Um, they need to be quite a bit warmer than, you know, just the temperature of your house um, with a basking spot that's kind of up into the 100 degrees or so. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're so the heat to make sure they stay warm because they are cold-blooded. Obviously, they'll need to uh, get some supplemental heat to keep themselves warm, and they're kind of desert animals. Um, so the heat's really important. Uh, and then other than that, their diet, um, is not terribly intricate, but might be a little bit unusual to some. Uh, he eats a lot of roaches and uh, mealworms and grubs and crickets, that sort of thing. Um, so that's something that uh, you have to kind of take on um, as, a, as a bearded dragon owner. Uh, it's also something that can get a little bit expensive. So kind of knowing that ahead of time and, and planning for that expense before... Um, before getting one is really important. Um, and then also knowing that they need enough room in their enclosure. Um, he's uh, still growing. He's six months. I've had got him in a 40 gallon uh, tank enclosure right now, but uh, as an adult, uh, ideally um, he'll be in a 120 gallon uh, enclosure. That's about four feet by two feet by two feet. That's the, the plan for the next tank I'll have for him. So there's a couple different things to keep in mind to make sure that they're going to be really 
as healthy as they can be and as happy as they can be too. Well, Natalie, thanks so much for calling in and telling us about your pet, Jean. We yeah, appreciate it. Um, thanks so much. Dr. Adair, do you have any other advice for folks who are, are thinking about a, an animal like a bearded dragon um, as a pet? Any Anything that um, sticks out that people should think about before they um, look into getting a pet like this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I mean, bearded dragons do make great pets. And as far as reptiles go, um, they are probably the most common uh, pet for a reason. They have a ton of personality. Um, so I think the biggest things is to do uh, is to look into some of these care requirements because um, they do need you know special caging you know they we can't just keep them in a in a bedroom or a, um any sort of old you know cage or something uh they do have special heating and requirements uh a lot of reptiles including barrier dragons also have special lighting requirements they um so they require uv light uh, to help be able to uh, uh you know make vitamin d and absorb calcium from their gi tract uh and so uh i think i think you know it, doing the research can be tough because there's all kinds of stuff on the internet, as we know. Um, I think that uh, looking into care requirements from multiple sources, um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, I'm probably biased because of my job, but there are a lot of exotic uh, veterinarians who do have um, uh, free resources, uh, information on their websites for different exotic pets, which can be a good place. Um and uh you know so i think i think looking uh and then talking to people that that have them um yeah, there's for many of these exotics there are pretty extensive uh at least online groups of of you know owner groups of of all these and um they're not always the uh they're not always the most inviting places but they can be a good place of uh, a, a good source of information for people thinking about getting new pets mm. And and how long do bearded dragons live for? Um, it can be pretty variable. On on average, I'd say average is probably six to eight years. Although absolutely, I've seen them in the in you know in the the younger teens. Yeah. Um, but ages, I I kind of say it's it, it for many animals. It, it's kind of like a person. You know, if you say how long does a person live? Well, some some people make it to a hundred or over, but you know. The average is, is like, you know, in the 70s or 80s. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, and Dr. Adair, when we're speaking about um, care here, I'm really glad you brought up the heating um, that some animals, particularly like some lizards, uh, require. Because, uh, you know, as we, we've we talked on this show a lot about um, rising costs for heating. And, of course, heating a tank is very different than heating a room in a house. It's going to be a lot less expensive. But still, it, it seems like that is a cost that maybe some folks might not consider before they purchase a pet. Right. Yeah, I mean, it is true that that it is. It, I mean, having a uh, a reptile that is going to require, you know, uh, especially a bearded dragon that has fairly high temperature requirements. Um, there, I mean, that that is a that is a fairly significant cost. I mean, there are ways that, um, you know, by keeping them in a in a specific room that's kept potentially a little bit warmer, more insulated. Um, but yeah, there's there's. Uh, both heating and lighting requirements, which are going to require electricity. Um, so that's definitely something to consider. Okay. Let's go now to Michael in Windsor. Michael, you're on the air. Go ahead. 
Hi, hi, this is Michael, and I'm a retired middle school science teacher who had uh, various, uh, I guess you call them exotic pets in my classroom, and I wanted to tell you about the very positive influences they had on some students in case people are wondering whether they're, they're good or bad. Um, I had um, uh, things like tarantulas and scorpions and hissing cockroaches, and the, the, the tarantulas had the probably most interesting story. I had a student who um, really, really connected with the tarantulas and would hold them and take them with her in a basket to her specials her her learning specialist and people thought she was weird and unusual and they would kind of avoid her and i saw her as sort of an animal whisperer hmm. and uh, she went on to uh, go to um uh, uh vet school and she's now a veterinary ophthalmologist in um, western new york and 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 she and so i think that having that connection to those exotic animals especially the tarantulas really helped her find out who she was as a as a, a sort of a specialist and and it it really helped her so so don't be deterred if a student expresses or a child expresses interest in something that you don't like like a, a spider a tarantula we she also had in my classroom um the uh, iguanas and um and then i i ended my um uh, career there with a uh California desert tortoise that I had inherited from a student and he was just the greatest. So <laughs> tortoises are, are great. His name was Yoda and he was such a great um, uh, influence and he got requests to go around to other schools. The problem that he uh, with him was fish and wildlife uh, uh, didn't see him as a species that was allowed in Vermont. So I had to send them back to California, which was probably the right thing to do. But tortoises are great uh, pets, and um, tarantulas are too. Well, Michael, and thank you so much for, for calling in and sharing the story of your student who connected so closely with that tarantula. Uh, we should also note that, that tortoises, um, right, they're, they're, uh, many of them are not um, allowed in Vermont, and they also live for a very long time, right? Some up to eighty or a hundred years. So something to really caution yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some some Galapagos tortoises that we know have been alive for over a hundred years. So yeah. yes, very 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 long lived. And do you mind reiterating for us one more time if people are not sure about which animals are are okay to have here in Vermont and which ones are are specifically banned? Where where can they find that information? Yeah, absolutely. So the the place to look is the is Vermont Fish. And Wildlife Services, um, and they have a they have some a very detailed list of things that that uh, things that are are definitely allowed, things that are definitely not allowed, and then there are there are things that um, you know may be allowed in certain situations or with permits. Mm. And and Michael's call just now um, also. Um, you know, I, I love that that his student went on to become a, a veterinarian. Um, I, I'm curious, Doctor Adair, if you also had a, a moment like that as a child that led you down this uh, actually, path. Actually, yeah, very similar. Actually, uh, my uh, second grade teacher uh, had some corn snakes in her classroom, uh, and I had just moved to a new school, um, and I think I. I mean, of course, this I, I don't have a strong memory of this part, but my parents told me I was having a little bit of trouble adjusting. Uh, but I really loved the snakes and, and took a, uh, 
a uh, an active role in in kind of caring for them. Um, and actually, at the end of the year, my my teacher actually gifted me one of the corn snakes to live at home, and that that kind of started my love of reptiles and exotic animals. Hmm. So. Well, you know, I've also heard over the years about a um, a shortage of skilled veterinarians, and we hear about shortages in many different industries these days. But I'm curious what your experience has been. Um, I, I know you're new to Vermont, so might not know like the full veterinary landscape. But but do you feel like the the those services that you all are providing at Bev's are are in short supply right now? Uh, I think absolutely overall, and I think I think. COVID certainly was was a big strain on a lot of veterinarians. I think um, there was a there was an uptick in in uh, pet ownership, um, and I think there was long, there and there still may be in some areas very long waits to be able to get into the vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do know there's kind of even longer than that. There's been an issue with being a shortage of especially some of the the large animal veterinarians, especially food animal veterinarians. So vet vets taking care of you know cows and pigs and um and i know that's uh, and then in, in more rural places there's been a shortage too so that's absolutely an, an ongoing issue yeah uh, well let's go back to the phones we have a call from christina in underhill christina you're on the air go ahead hi uh thanks for taking my call i just uh, wanted to give a little shout out to the best pet ever um i have had a little red f for about 10 years. He's the little red salamanders that you see uh, that come out after a a spring or summer rain. And I scooped him up 10 years ago. I've got him in a 20-gallon tank that has like a terrarium. He's got lots of little plants in it. And I feed him raw meat off a skewer, and he comes out when he sees me. And he's two inches long, and he's just fantastic. So I just, uh, I love my little left. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the call, Christine. I appreciate it. Um, Eps, I know we, we, were, we were talking earlier about how, you know, it's not really kosher to, to bring in wild animals into the home. Um, but um, curious what your thoughts are on, on the call. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, hopefully we didn't, uh, she didn't say her full name. Uh, technically, that, uh, that that's not something we're allowed to do. Uh, native species are are absolutely only allowed to be had with um with special permits but uh amphibians absolutely are are uh, are exotic pets there's definitely frog species and salamander species that are allowed um and that many people keep um one that is becoming especially popular is axolotls uh which are fully aquatic salamanders um and they have really cute faces uh and i think a lot of people um They've, they've been getting more and more popular over the last five or 10 years, I think. Well, we had an email come in from a listener named Jared who says, I'm concerned that the discussion of, quote unquote, captive breeding has not identified the horrific conditions under which many animals, including common companion animals such as dogs and cats, are bred and raised in captivity. Captive bred animals are not an excuse or a defense for keeping exotics. Um, and I think Jared raises a good point here about, you know, even if a an animal is is kind of like legal under the letter of the law. Um, captive breeding can can lead, as Jared writes, to, to some pretty horrific conditions. So do you have any advice for folks who, who are want to buy a pet but want to make sure that it's coming from a place that um, is, you know, treating their animals with, with kindness and compassion? Absolutely. And I mean, that, that it's a valid point. And, and I will say with 
with any big group, there's going to be, um, you know, exceptions. And, and, and unfortunately, just as he said, with dogs and cats, there, there can be some very bad conditions. Um, and I, I know the same is true with, with some of the exotics as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, absolutely there, there could be an argument to be made that should we even have these as pets, but, um, as long as we we do, and as long as people are going to have them, I think it's important to be able to provide them the care they need. Um, and I think that uh, for people for people that are interested and are looking, um, you know, I think that there are many responsible breeders, breeders that um, are doing it for for the love of the species, for wanting to make sure that um, we keep some of these species going. There certainly are some that. Um, while the captive bred populations are um, are fairly strong and healthy populations, that in the, the wild counterparts are more threatened or endangered, and that's true of certain reptiles and and some of the parrot species as well. Um, so I, I mean I think I would say overall it's important um, to to ask to see you know the parents or to to talk with the breeder about the conditions, make sure that what they are telling uh, what the what the breeder or the the uh, the person that's selling the animal is is telling you about them make sure that matches up with the care that they should be getting hmm. well we only have a couple minutes left here and dr adair i've been very curious to hear from you um, about the smartest pet that you have ever encountered does anything come to mind uh, i would absolutely say hands down it's it's some of the the larger parrot species um so some of the african gray parrots macaws uh amazon parrots um i'm always amazed about uh what they what they seem to know uh what they pick up on um from my point of view it's interesting because uh i i see uh many come in that they've they've managed to train their owners to do certain things sometimes without their owners realizing it um like what oh like like getting them to to uh, get their way about getting a certain food or getting let out of the cage or um uh, about you know getting interactions with them so i i would definitely say the the parrots are are definitely the smartest has any, any parrot ever uh cursed you out or oh, got yeah, mad when you're times. providing treatment really uh, oh yeah oh yeah and it, it's uh and and it's it's always funny when the owner doesn't know they even know those words but uh <laughs> uh it it can be pretty entertaining it doesn't bother me <laughs> well dr jordan adair an exotic pets veterinarian in williston thanks so much for joining us and talking through responsible pet ownership uh, thanks for having me. I think it was a great show.